0: Still another time have I come to a place where it is very difficult to proceed. I ought to be hardened by this stage, but there are some experiences and imitations which scar too deeply to permit of healing, and leave only such an added sensitiveness that memory re-inspires all the original horror. We saw, as I have said, certain obstructions on the polished floor ahead, and I may add that our nostrils were assailed almost simultaneously by a very curious intensification of the strange prevailing photor. Now, quite plainly mixed with the nameless stench of those others which had gone before us. The light of the second torch left no doubt of what the obstructions were, and we dared approach them only because we could see, even from a distance, that they were quite past all harming power, as had been the six similar specimens unearthed from the monstrous star mounted graves at Poor Lake's camp. They were, indeed, as lacking in completeness as most of those we had unearthed, though it grew plain from the thick, dark green pool gathering around them, that their incompleteness was of infinitely greater recency. There seemed to be only four of them, whereas Lake's bulletins would have suggested no less than eight as forming the group which had preceded us. To find them in this state was wholly unexpected, and we wondered what sort of monstrous struggle had occurred down here in the dark. Penguins, attacked in a body, retaliate savagely with their beaks and our ears now made certain the existence of a rookery far beyond. Had those others disturbed such a place and aroused murderous pursuit? The obstructions did not suggest it, for penguin beaks against the tough tissues Lake had dissected could hardly account for the terrible damage our approaching glance was beginning to make out. Besides, the huge blind birds we had seen appeared to be singularly peaceful. Had there, then, been a struggle among those others? And were the absent four responsible? If so, where were they? Were they close at hand and likely to form an immediate menace to us? We glanced anxiously at some of the smooth-floored lateral passages as we continued our slow and frankly reluctant approach. Whatever the conflict was, it had clearly been that which had frightened the penguins into their unaccustomed wandering. And must, then have arisen near that faintly heard rookery in the incalculable gulf beyond, since there were no signs that any birds had normally dwelt here. Perhaps, we reflected, there had been a hideous running fight, with the weaker party seeking to get back to the cached sledges when their pursuers finished them. One could picture the demoniac fray between namelessly monstrous entities as it surged out of the black abyss with the great clouds of frantic penguins squawking and scurrying ahead. I say that we approached those sprawling and incomplete obstructions slowly and reluctantly. What to heaven we had never approached them at all, but had run back at top speed out of that blasphemous tunnel with the greasily smooth floors and the degenerate murals aping and mocking the things they had superseded. Run back before we had seen what we did see and before our minds were burned with something which will never let us breathe easily again. Both of our torches were turned on the prostrate objects, so that we soon realized the dominant factor in their incompleteness. Mauled, compressed, twisted, and ruptured as they were, their chief common injury was total decapitation. From each one the tentacled starfish head had been removed, and as we drew near we saw that the manner of removal looked more like some hellish tearing or suction than like any ordinary form of cleavage. Their noisome, dark green ichor formed a large, spreading pool, but its stench was half overshadowed by that newer and stranger stench, here more pungent than at any other point along our route. Only when we had come very close to the sprawling obstructions could we trace that second, unexplainable photor to any immediate source. And the instant we did so, Danforth remembering certain very vivid sculptures of the Old One's history in the Permian Age 150 million years ago, gave vent to a nerve-tortured cry which echoed hysterically through that vaulted and archaic passage with the evil palimpsest carvings. I came only just short of echoing his cry myself, for I had seen those primal sculptures too, and had shudderingly admired the way the nameless artist had suggested that hideous slime coating found on certain incomplete and prostrate Old Ones those whom the frightful Shoggoths had characteristically slain and sucked to a ghastly headlessness in the great war of resubjugation. They were infamous nightmare sculptures even when telling of age-old, bygone things, for Shoggoths and their work ought not to be seen by human beings or portrayed by any beings. The mad author of the Necronomicon had nervously tried to swear that none had been bred on this planet and that only drugged dreamers had ever conceived them. Formless protoplasm able to mock and reflect all forms and organs and processes. Viscous agglutinations of bubbling cells. Rubbery 15-foot spheroids infinitely plastic and ductile. Slaves of suggestion. Builders of cities. More and more sullen. More and more intelligent. More and more amphibious. More and more imitative. Great God! What madness made even those blasphemous old ones willing to use and to carve such things? And now, when Danforth and I saw the freshly glistening and reflectively iridescent black slime, which clung thickly to those headless bodies, and stank obscenely with that new odor whose cause only a diseased fancy could envisage, clung to those bodies and sparkled less voluminously on a smooth part of the accursed re-sculptured wall in a series of grouped dots we understood the quality of cosmic fear to its uttermost depths. It was not fear of those four missing others, for all too well did we suspect they would do no harm again. Poor devils. After all, they were not evil things of their kind. They were the men of another age and another order of being. Nature had played a hellish jest on them, as it will on any others that human madness... Callousness or cruelty may hereafter drag up in that hideously dead or sleeping polar waste, and this was their tragic homecoming. They had not even been savages, for what indeed had they done? That awful awakening in the cold of an unknown epic, perhaps an attack by the furry, frantically barking quadrupeds, and a dazed defense against them in the equally frantic white simians with the queer wrappings and paraphernalia. Poor Lake. Poor Gedney. And poor old ones. Scientists to the last. What had they done that we would not have done in their place? God, what intelligence and persistence. What a facing of the incredible, just as those carven kinsmen and forebears had faced things only a little less incredible. Radiates, vegetables, monstrosities, star spawn. Whatever they had been, they were men. They had crossed the icy peaks on whose templed slopes they had once worshipped and roamed among the tree ferns. They had found their dead city brooding under its curse, and had read its carven latter days as we had done. They had tried to reach their living fellows in fabled depths of blackness they had never seen, and what had they found? All this flashed in unison through the thoughts of Danforth and me as we looked from those headless... Slime-coated shapes to the loathsome set sculptures and the diabolical dot groups of fresh slime on the wall beside them. Looked and understood what must have triumphed and survived down there in the cyclopean water city of that nighted, penguin-fringed abyss, whence even now a sinister curling mist had begun to belch pallidly, as if in answer to Danforth's hysterical scream. The shock of recognizing that monstrous slime and headlessness had frozen us into mute Motionless statues, and it is only through later conversations that we have learned of the complete identity of our thoughts at that moment. It seemed eons that we stood there, but actually it could not have been more than ten or fifteen seconds. That hateful, pallid mist curled forward, as if veritably driven by some remoter advancing bulk. And then came a sound which upset much of what we had just decided and in so doing broke the spell and enabled us to run like mad past squawking, confused penguins over our former trail back to the city, along ice-sunken megalithic corridors to the great open circle, and up that archaic spiral ramp in a frenzied, automatic plunge for the sane outer air and light of day. The new sound, as I have intimated, upset much that we had decided because it was what poor lake's dissection had led us to attribute to those we had just judged dead. It was, Danforth later told me, precisely what he had caught in infinitely muffled form when at that spot beyond the alley corner above the glacial level. And it certainly had a shocking resemblance to the windpipings we had both heard around the lofty mountain caves. At the risk of seeming puerile, I will add another thing too, if only because of the surprising way Danforth's impression chimed with mine. Of course, common reading is what prepared us both to make the interpretation, though Danforth has hinted at queer notions about unsuspected and forbidden sources, to which Poe may have had access when writing his Arthur Gordon Pym a century ago. It will be remembered that in that fantastic tale there is a word of unknown but terrible and prodigious significance, connected with the Antarctic and screamed eternally by the gigantic, spectrally snowy birds of that malign region's core. Tekalili, Tekalili. That, I may admit, is exactly what we thought we heard conveyed by that sudden sound behind the advancing white mist, that insidious musical piping over a singularly wide range. We were in full flight before three notes or syllables had been uttered, though we knew that the swiftness of the old ones would enable any scream roused and pursuing survivor of the slaughter to overtake us in a moment if it really wished to do so. We had a vague hope, however, that non-aggressive conduct and a display of kindred reason might cause such a being to spare us in case of capture, if only from scientific curiosity. After all, if such one had nothing to fear for itself, it would have no motive in harming us. Concealment being futile at this juncture, we used our torch for a running glance behind and perceived that the mist was thinning. Would we see, at last... A complete and living specimen of those others? Again came that insidious musical piping. Tekalili, Tekalili. Then, noting that we were actually gaining on our pursuer, it occurred to us that the entity might be wounded. We could take no chances, however, since it was very obviously approaching in answer to Danforth's scream rather than in flight from any other entity. The timing was too close to admit of doubt, of the whereabouts of that less conceivable and less mentionable nightmare, that fetid, unglimpsed mountain of slime-spewing protoplasm whose race had conquered the abyss and sent land pioneers to re-carve and squirm through the burrows of the hills. We could form no guess, and it cost us a genuine pang to leave the probably crippled old one, perhaps a lone survivor, to the peril of recapture and a nameless fate. Thank heaven we did not slacken our run. The curling mist had thickened again and was driving ahead with increased speed, whilst the straying penguins in our rear were squawking and screaming and displaying signs of a panic really surprising in view of their relatively minor confusion when we had passed them. Once more came that sinister, wide-ranged piping. Tecalili, Tecalili. We had been wrong. The thing was not wounded but had merely paused on encountering the bodies of its fallen kindred and the hellish slime inscription above them. We could never know what that demon message was, but those burials at Lake's camp had shewn how much importance the beings attached to their dead. Our recklessly used torch now revealed ahead of us the large open cavern where various ways converged, and we were glad to be leaving those morbid palimpsest sculptures, almost felt when even scarcely seen, behind. Another thought which the advent of the cave inspired was the possibility of losing our pursuer at this bewildering focus of large galleries. There were several of the blind albino penguins in the open space, and it seemed clear that their fear of the oncoming entity was extreme to the point of unaccountability. If at that point we dimmed our torch to the very lowest limit of traveling need, keeping it strictly in front of us, the frightened squawking motions of the huge birds in the mist might muffle our footfalls. Screen our true course and somehow set up a false lead amidst the churning spiraling fog, the littered and unglistening floor of the main tunnel beyond this point, as differing from the other morbidly polished burrows, could hardly form a highly distinguishing feature, even so far as we could conjecture for those indicated special senses which made the old ones partly though imperfectly independent of light in emergencies in fact we were somewhat apprehensive lest we go astray ourselves in our haste. For we had, of course, decided to keep straight on toward the dead city, since the consequences of loss in those unknown foothill honeycombings would be unthinkable. The fact that we survived and emerged is sufficient proof that the thing did take a wrong gallery whilst we providentially hit on the right one. The penguins alone could not have saved us, but in conjunction with the mist, they seemed to have done so, Only a benign fate kept the curling vapors thick enough at the right moment, for they were constantly shifting and threatening to vanish. Indeed, they did lift for a second just before we emerged from the nauseously re-sculptured tunnel into the cave, so that we actually caught one first and only half-glimpse of the oncoming entity as we cast a final, desperate, fearful glance backward, before dimming the torch and mixing with the penguins in hope of dodging the pursuit. If the fate which screened us was benign, that which gave us the half-glimpse was infinitely the opposite, for to that flash of semi-vision can be traced a full half of the horror which has ever since haunted us. Our exact motive in looking back again was perhaps no more than the immemorial instinct of the pursued to gauge the nature and course of its pursuer, or perhaps it was an automatic attempt to answer a subconscious question raised by one of our senses. In the midst of our flight, with all our faculties centered on the problem of escape, we were in no condition to observe and analyze details, yet even so our latent brain cells must have wondered at the message brought them by our nostrils. Afterward we realized what it was, that our retreat from the fetid slime coating on those headless obstructions and the coincided approach of the pursuing entity had not brought us the exchange of stenches which logic called for. In the neighborhood of the prostrate things, that new and lately unexplainable Fotor had been wholly dominant, but by this time it ought to have largely given place to the nameless stench associated with those others. This it had not done, for instead, the newer and less bearable smell was now virtually undiluted and growing more and more poisonously insistent each second. So we glanced back, simultaneously it would appear though no doubt the incipient motion of one prompted the imitation of the other. As we did so, we flashed both torches full strength at the momentarily thin mist, either from sheer primitive anxiety to see all we could, or in a less primitive but equally unconscious effort to dazzle the entity before we dimmed our light and dodged among the frantic penguins of the labyrinth center ahead. Unhappy act. Not Orpheus himself, or Lot's wife, paid much more dearly for a backward glance, and again came that shocking, wide-ranged piping. Tekelili. Tekelili. I might as well be frank, even if I cannot bear to be quite direct, in stating what we saw, though at the time we felt that it was not to be admitted even to each other. The words reaching the reader can never even suggest the awfulness of the sight itself. It crippled our consciousness so completely that I wonder we had the residual sense to dim our torches as planned and to strike the right tunnel toward the dead city. Instinct alone must have carried us through, perhaps better than reason could have done. Though if that was what saved us, we paid a high price. Of reason we certainly had little enough left. Danforth was totally unstrung and the first thing I remember of the rest of the journey was hearing him light-headedly chant a hysterical formula in which I alone of mankind could have found anything but insane irrelevance. It reverberated in falsetto echoes among the squawks of the penguins, reverberated through the vaults ahead, and, thank God, through the now empty vaultings behind. He could not have begun it at once, else we would not have been alive and blindly racing, I shuddered to think what a shade of difference in his nervous reactions might have brought. South Station Under. Washington Under. Park Street Under. Kendall. Central. Harvard. The poor fool was chanting the familiar stations of the Boston-Cambridge Tunnel that burrowed through our peaceful native soil thousands of miles away in New England. Yet to me the ritual had neither irrelevance nor home-filling. It had only horror, because I knew unerringly the monstrous, nephendous analogy that had suggested it. We had expected, upon looking back, to see a terrible and incredibly moving entity if the mists were thin enough. But of that entity we had formed a clear idea. What we did see, for the mists were indeed all too malignly thinned, was something altogether different and immeasurably more hideous and detestable. It was the utter, objective embodiment of the fantastic novelist Thing That Should Not Be, and its nearest comprehensible analog is a vast, onrushing subway train as one sees it from a station platform, the great black front looming colossally out of infinite subterraneous distance, constellated with strangely colored lights and filling the prodigious burrow as a piston fills a cylinder. But we were not on a station platform, we were on the track ahead as the nightmare plastic column of fetid black iridescence oozed tightly onward through its fifteen-foot sinus, gathering unholy speed and driving before it a spiral, rethickening cloud of the pallid abyss vapor. It was a terrible, indescribable thing, faster than any subway train, a shapeless congeries of protoplasmic bubbles, faintly self-luminous. And with myriads of temporary eyes forming and unforming as pustules of greenish light all over the tunnel filling front that bore down upon us, crushing the penguins and slithering over the glistening floor that it and its kind had swept so evilly free of all litter. Still came that eldritch mocking cry Tekalili, Tekalili. And at last we remembered that the demoniac Shagoths, given life, thought, and plastic organ patterns solely by the old ones, and having no language save that which the dog groups expressed, had likewise no voice save the imitated accents of their bygone masters.